Once again, good morning, family. In our morning sessions here, we've been going rather sequentially through the book of Acts, looking for those first-generation lessons for us last-generation believers, right? And we've seen that from the early church experience, some things they did well, some things they needed improvement in, but some of the lessons we can take away from ourselves were that we need to be a truly converted people, we need to be disciplined in the faith and not just have that mountaintop experience, but keep going. We need to be genuinely, disinterestedly benevolent to others. We need to be individual soul winners and not dependent on the pastor alone, but every member needs to be a missionary. We need to be doctrinally sound and square on the spirit of prophecy. We need to, we need to be a people who who put God first in their lives and stand firm on the Word of God and be extraordinarily sacrificial as we give to His cause, whether of our time or our talent or our means. And to that list of qualifications or attributes, characteristics that mark God's people, today we want to add creative, ingenious, shrewd, our message this morning is entitled, Guile. And I have enjoyed studying this particular topic out, and I pray that the Lord will bless us as we study together. But before we study anything from God's Word, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this absolutely beautiful set, uh, <laughs> preparation day. The Sabbath is coming, Lord, and we want to be your people every day but especially in preparation for that holiest of days. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention this morning to a study of your word, I would ask that you would help us understand what you would have us to know. And more than just seeing it as lessons from the past, Lord, help us to have practical application to the present so that the future coming of Jesus will be sooner than ever before. So Lord, bless us in our time together, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. It doesn't take long studying through the New Testament, and particularly the book of Acts, to realize that the Apostle Paul was a particularly brilliant individual. Paul, who of course was Saul, was devoutly Jewish, yet was a Roman-born citizen. Growing up in a cosmopolitan environment, he learned not only Hebrew, but also Greek and likely other languages. Not to mention, by the way, after his conversion, when he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 18, could declare, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. So he had natural abilities, supernatural gifts. He was trained under the eminent Rabbi Gamaliel, Paul was a multilingual scholar and a fierce advocate of the Christian faith. He was a brilliant man. Now, of course, beyond any traditional course of study, far and away his deepest and most intense education came directly from Jesus Christ. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, Paul gives his 
testimony of his conversion, of how he was going out to persecute the people of God. And we'll skip down to verse 20. After he's revived, after he is put back on his feet and his sight is returned, we read in verse 20, immediately he preached, the, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now it says here in verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And then it goes straight to verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, and it makes the implication in that text that the basket to Jerusalem was one, two punch. But if you go to Galatians chapter 1, on another occasion when he gives his testimony, he gives more detail. And we find out something fascinating. Galatians chapter 1, starting with verse 11. He speaks about his qualification to be an apostle of Jesus Christ because one of the qualifications of the disciples who were then sent out as the apostles is they were the ones who followed Jesus wherever he went during his earthly ministry. They spent three and a half years with him, right? They were witnesses to him. Saul didn't have that experience during Jesus' earthly ministry, but he did have that experience. Watch this now. Galatians chapter 1 starting verse 11. He explains, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. He makes the claim, what I'm preaching to you, I got directly from Jesus Christ. He revealed it to me. And he explains, verse 13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Verse 18, then after how long? Three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. So he adds, you know, before, before God fully used me and put me into place, he took me out for three years. Commenting on this time, Acts of the Apostles, page 125, gives us this insight of his time in the deserts of Arabia. Here in the solitude of the desert, Paul had ample opportunity for quiet study and meditation. He calmly reviewed his past experience and made sure work of repentance. He sought God with all his heart, resting not until he knew for a certainty that his 
repentance was accepted and his sin pardoned. He longed for the assurance that Jesus would be with him in his coming ministry. Now this is a fascinating line, especially as we know what's coming in the rest of the book of Acts. He emptied his soul of the prejudices and traditions that had hitherto shaped his life and received instruction from the source of truth. So Paul had the same prejudices that would be faced with the rest of the brethren and the apostles, but it was during his time away that he became such a fierce advocate for the work among the Gentiles. Christ worked on his heart and made him the missionary he needed him to be. She goes on to explain, Jesus communed with him and established him in the faith, bestowing upon him a rich measure of wisdom and grace. Now, to me, it's, I find it fascinating that it was during this time that Christ was working that Jewish prejudice out of Paul, that he was also working it out of Peter, because this is the time of his encounter with Cornelius. So the Lord is shaping these individuals, preparing them for their ministry in separate places, but they're aiming for the same goal. The Lord organizes and orchestrates his work. Now, we're going here focusing on the mind of Paul, the brilliance of him in Today we might say that Paul had both book smarts and street smarts. He wasn't just pie-in-the-sky philosophy. He was practical, down-to-earth, quick on his feet. Somehow he knew just what to say or do at just the right time and in just the right way to win souls and make his ministry the most effective. For example, as we mentioned yesterday, he had just won if we were to say, the great debate in Acts chapter 15 about circumcision, and what's the very first thing he does with Timothy? Circumcises him. Why? Not because he has to, because it's going to make the mission more effective, right? Let's look at some more examples. Let's go to Acts chapter 17 to see the mind, the thinking of Paul for the work of ministry. Acts chapter 17, let's start with verse 22. Here Paul is faced with the brilliant philosophers of Athens. And you're probably well versed with his strategy here. It says in verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Notice he tries to go as far as he can and meet them where they are. He's like, you're worshiping God you don't know. I worship the same God. I just happen to know him, and I'm here to explain him to you. And later on, he would quote their own philosophers back to them. He, would, he, was, he was trying his best to meet these people in a way that would work most efficiently for them. Acts chapter 18, let's go one chapter later. This one I find particularly not only insightful, but um, actually funny. Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. 
So he kind of storms out, makes a big uh, scene about it. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Your blood be on your own head. Verse 7. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was where? Next door to the synagogue. That's it, I'm leaving. <laughs> he walks one house next door. Why does he do that? Well, let's just keep reading. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So yes, he was done with them, but he was still wasn't done trying to win them, right? So he goes all the way away to the very next door. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There's a little interesting statement that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians. Because remember, right there in that passage, it talked about the Corinthians believed, right? He was there at Corinth when he did that. That shrewd little move. And notice what he tells the Corinthians in, Acts, I mean in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 16. You know, there was some accusation that Paul had bewitched people and <laughs> tricked them. And he quotes their own rebuke back to them and basically wears it as a mantle. Now, there is some scholarly dispute as to whether Paul was saying, you said I did this, but I didn't, or whether he's saying it in the way of, you said I did it, and you're exactly right, I did. But let's look at the statement, Acts, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 16. It reads this way from the New King James Version. Um, Nevertheless, being crafty, and let's start again, the full text, but be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by what? Cunning. He's like, I got you. The King James Version says this. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Now, some other interpretations of this particular passage go even farther. The New American Standard Bible. Crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Slow down. Not sure I agree with that interpretation. The New English translation, yet because I was a crafty person, I took you in by deceit. I don't think that Paul is talking about being deceptive. But he was talking about being crafty, being cunning, cunning, creative, shrewd in his approach in winning souls. Now, commenting on this particular philosophy that Paul articulates here in 2 Corinthians, the, the spirit of prophecy gives us this counsel. It's found on Evangelism, page 141. Our ministers need more of the wisdom that Paul had. When he went to labor for the Jews, he did not first make prominent the birth, betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. Notwithstanding, these were the special truths for that time. You realize, of course, that that was present truth at that time. But that's not where he started. He first brought them down step by step over the promises that had been made of a Savior and over the prophecies that pointed him out. 
after dwelling upon these specifications, until these specifications were distinct in the minds of all, and they knew that they were to have a Savior, he then presented the fact that this Savior had already come. Christ fulfilled every specification. This was the guile with which Paul caught souls. He presented the truth in such a manner that their former prejudice did not arise to blind their eyes and pervert their judgment. So he didn't just say, all right, I'm preaching the truth and just go in there whoosh, and unload. No, 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 no. He looked at the situation, measured it out, and said, all right, what's the most effective way to get the point across here? Given this particular audience, what approach should I take? Let me think this through first. She said, our ministers need that. That we need to have a more thoughtful, creative approach in dealing with people. It's not a one-size-fits-all ministry. Now, in the same way that Paul's sacrificial ministry that we studied yesterday was merely a copy of Christ's great original sacrifice of himself, Paul's brilliance and savvy was also a mere reflection of the master evangelist's strategies. You know, Jesus Christ was brilliant in how he operated. I know that sounds like an understatement. Of course, he's God, he's omniscient. But even in his humanity, he operated with the same tools that we have, the same brain that we can have. Paul says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, right? But he demonstrates, and we could, just, we could spend a very, very long time looking through the life of Christ and looking how in each situation, whether it's Nicodemus or the woman at the well or in, in his interactions with the Jews, we could look at example after example of where Christ tailored his approach based on the circumstance he found himself. For instance, let's just look at a few, and there are many, many others we could look at, but let's go to John chapter 5 and look at some, some of the brilliance of Christ in his ministerial approach. Ministerial approach. John chapter 5, starting with verse 5. This is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. You know all about the stirring of the water and the, uh, uh, all the expectation there. Now let's skip down to verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, now you notice something. It tells us how long he's been sick. How long was it? 38 years. Did Jesus know he's been sick that long? Yes. Now let me ask you another question. Does it give us any indication that this man is on the verge of imminent death? No. He's just sick and stuck. And he's been there for quite a long time. My point being, he could probably go one more day, right? But notice it, what the text says about this. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now notice, he does not say rise and walk. He says rise, do what else? Take up your bed, and walk. 
And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And look how that verse closes. And that day was the what? Sabbath. Why didn't Jesus just heal this man quietly? Skip the whole take up your bed part. Or why didn't he come back tomorrow? Why that day? Why immediately? Why on that Sabbath day did he do that deed that way? I think he was trying to make a point. And I think even more than that, and I know this sounds, he's, he's trying to, I, it's very, you don't want to say he was trying to pick a fight. But let's say he was trying to start a discussion. Desire of Ages, page 206. Jesus had come to free the Sabbath from the burdensome requirements that had made it a curse instead of a blessing. For this reason, he had chosen the Sabbath upon which to perform the act of healing at Bethesda. Listen to this. He could have healed the sick man as well as on any other day of the week. Or he might simply have cured him without bidding him bear away his bed. But this would not have given him the opportunity he desired. A wise purpose underlay every act of Christ's life on earth. He was trying to maximize. I don't, I don't want to just heal this guy. I want to cure the Sabbath itself. Everything he did was important in itself and in its teaching. Among the afflicted ones at the pool, he selected the worst case upon whom to exercise his healing power and bade the man carry his bed through the city in order to publish the great work that had been wrought upon him. You realize there were other sick people there, right? Why'd he pick this guy? Who had been sick the longest, who was the most miserable, the one that would stand out the most, the one whose healing would get the most attention, and then have him parade it through town carrying his bed. And that day was the Sabbath day. Did Jesus know what he was doing? Oh, come on now. This would raise the question of what it was lawful to do on the Sabbath and would open the way for him to denounce the restrictions of the Jews in regard to the Lord's day and to declare their traditions void. He's like, I'm going to heal this man, but I'm also going to use this as a platform and a springboard to do the next thing. He was thinking strategically. Christ didn't walk around shooting from the hip. He had a plan. He had a method. He had an objective to win more and to maximize every opportunity for the work of God. Let's look at another interesting example. Go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Luke, chapter 24. This is after Christ's resurrection when certain disciples just couldn't believe. And we'll start with verse 13. You know the story. It's the road to Emmaus, but let's look at it again. Luke 24, verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, these are disciples of Jesus, and now Jesus joins them. You would expect, perhaps, some reaction to the man they think is dead walking beside them. Verse 16, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. 
And from this disguised position, notice verse 17, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have, have with one another as you walk and are sad? So he just says, hi guys, how are you doing? Why are you so sad? What are you talking about? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? He's talking to Jesus. And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Now be very careful. Jesus does not say, yes, I'm a stranger, and no, I don't know what happened. He didn't practice deceit, but he was cunning. There's a fine line, friends. Notice what Jesus says. And he said to them, what things? He didn't say, I don't know them. He says, why don't you tell me? What things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a, prof a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. We'll come back to that in our next story. This is the third day, they said. They knew there was significance to that. But let's keep going. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking now, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So he comes along, well, the story you're telling me sounds exactly like what the scripture said had to happen. Why are you so sad? Then verse 27, what does he do? He gives them a Bible study. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Man, I would like to have heard how Jesus presented the gospel truth from his word about himself. Story continues, verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. How far away is Jerusalem? Seven miles. They've just walked seven miles. They sat down to start eating Jesus does his reveal, their hearts are on fire with excitement, and they leave the meal and run back to Jerusalem. Now, Desire of Ages, page 796. Why did Christ go all this way around to get to the point that I'm the Christ? He had... Uh, had he first made himself known to them, their hearts would have been satisfied. 
In the fullness of their joy, they would have hungered for nothing more. But it was necessary for them to understand the witness born to him by the types and prophecies of the Old Testament. Upon these, their faith must be established. Christ performed no miracle to convince them, but it was his first work to explain the Scriptures. They had looked upon his death as the destruction of all their hopes. Now he showed from the prophets that this was the very strongest evidence for their faith. By the way, did you see when, Je- when did Jesus reveal himself? He never said, I am the Christ. When he broke the bread, blessed it, and gave it to them, he stretches out his hands. And there had to be just a very ah, riveting moment. Because along, they're like, man, this guy is really sharp. Who is this guy, right? Then he stretches out their hands, and I like to imagine they're just like, like <gasps> and maybe Christ looks up, smiles, winks, boom, he's gone. <laughs> they're like, did you see that? We've been walking seven miles. <laughs> but Christ knew what he was doing. He knew that if he did that at the very first, they would have been thrilled and excited and they would have missed the depth that he wanted them to have. Perhaps, and I can't say the most brilliant thing that Christ did because that's just beyond my (laughs) ability to determine. But one of the more fascinating examples of Christ's insight is found in John chapter 2. Just turn the page to the right. John chapter 2, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he cleaned out the temple, as you recall. That particular action was not received well by the Jewish leaders. So we go to verse 18, after Jesus drives out the money changers and they get their wits about him and they ask him about him. How about this action? Verse 18 says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now remember on the road to Emmaus, they had that three-day concept in there. Jesus said, now this is the beginning of his ministry. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Why did Jesus say that? Let's be clear. Did the people he was talking to understand what he was saying? No. Did his disciples understand what he was saying? Nope. Let's go even further. Did anyone know what Jesus was talking about? Nope. Did Jesus explain what he meant? Nope. He just made that bold statement and left it hanging in the air and walked away. And that particular statement was repeated and festered in the minds of his enemies for years. In fact, let's go to Matthew chapter 26. 
We're going to come back right quick to John 2, but let's go to Matthew chapter 26. You recall that Jesus' trial was quite a, a farce. It was a mock trial. It was a mockery of justice. Everything about it was illegal and immoral. But even with all the stratagem to try to condemn Jesus Christ, what's fascinating is they couldn't even come up with false charges against him. He was so solid. So notice what they resort to. Matthew chapter 26, let's start with verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But found how much? None. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. So even though they had a lot of false witnesses, even for this mockery of a trial, their testimonies were so wildly contradictory and didn't match and didn't work that it still didn't get the job done. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. First of all, is that what Jesus said? Of course not. He didn't say he was going to destroy the temple. He said, you will destroy the temple, and I'll raise it up again in three days, right? But this was how it was twisted. This is what it had become after this three-year game of telephone. This is the only thing they could come up, trumped up charges to get Jesus. And of course, the temple was sacred to the Jews, and it was revered by the Romans. So this was the one point of agreement he could get the church and the state to cooperate together on. This guy was going to destroy in an act of terrorism the temple. Now he must be ended. Why did Jesus say those words? If no one understood him at the time, no one understood it for the rest of his ministry, and they are the very words that condemned him to the cross. Why would he say it? Let's go back to John 2, and I think we get an example. Start to get our explanation in John 2. You see, after Jesus made that declaration, and of course the, the Gospel of John was written after all the dust had settled and all the answers were understood, notice what the Gospel writer includes here. Again, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now notice verse 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples, what? Remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. When did they believe his words? After he had risen from the dead. Now, Again, think of the brilliance of Christ in studying this three-year strategy based on this one sentence. Desire of Ages, page 165. Listen carefully. Christ did not design that his word should be understood by the unbelieving Jews, nor even by his disciples at this time. He knew that they would be misconstrued by his enemies and would be turned against him. As at his trial, they would be brought as an accusation, and on Calvary, they would be flung at him as a taunt. 
those words would be repeated high and low by friends and enemies alike. But to explain them now would give his disciples a knowledge of his sufferings and bring upon them sorrow, which as yet they were not able to bear. And an explanation would prematurely disclose to the Jews the result of their prejudice and unbelief. Already they had entered upon a path which they would steadily pursue until he should be led as a lamb to the slaughter. So it wasn't for the Jews and it wasn't for the disciples. He wanted to make sure to veil it from them, but put it on record right at the beginning of his ministry. Here's the reason why. It was for the sake of those who should believe on him that these words of Christ were spoken. He knew that they would be repeated. Being spoken at the Passover, they would come to the ears of thousands and be carried to all parts of the world. After he had risen from the dead, their meaning would be made plain. To many, they would be conclusive evidence of his divinity. So Christ set the stage. He preached his own gospel message three years before the cross. Had his enemies be his mouthpiece, And through their witness, thousands were won to him. Christ never said anything by accident. He was purposeful. He was strategic. And friends, we need to be more like Jesus. Luke chapter 16. Jesus even talked about this in his ministry. The need to be thinkers. Luke chapter 16 Starting with verse 1, he also said to the disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. You get the picture? The steward is not doing his job well. The owner comes in and says, bring in your accounts. You're fired. Let's tally up the score before you leave. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. And he starts going down his list of options. I cannot dig. I mean, he's been in an office the whole time. He doesn't have the hands for it, the back for it, right? I can't dig. And what's the next one? I'm ashamed to beg. (laughs) So I can't do one. I'm not going to do the other. I have resolved what to do. So notice he had an honest job that he didn't do well. And he was dishonest in, so that was being taken away. There was the hard work that he couldn't do. There was the other work, or the other begging he wouldn't do. He said, ah, here's my idea. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Who are they? Well, let's keep reading. Then the steward said within, uh, in verse 5, So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? Now remember, this man is responsible for accounts receivable. He's the stewardship director. And he hasn't been getting anything for these people. He hasn't been doing his job. But now that he knows he's going to be fired, he quickly calls all those debtors in one by one. Quick, quick, quick. You got it at 1030? You're going to be my 11? You're going to be 1130? We're going to knock this out. How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Half off sale just for you today. Because we're so close. 
He's like, all right, great. I'll take that. Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. Now, I don't know if he liked that guy less. I'm not sure what happened. But But he's giving everybody fire sale discounts or I've been fired sale discounts, right? And he, look, when the master comes back and finds out. Now, the guy's already been fired, right? He has to uh, reckon the accounts. He knows he's doomed, so on his way out, he makes a nest for himself in the homes of the debtors. But think about this. In so doing, he's done more work for the master that one day (laughs) than he's done all the rest of the time he's been employed. Verse 8, so the master commended the unjust steward. Now, is he commending him for being a bad employee? No. And he's still fired, right? So what is the commendation for? So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt how? Shrewdly, wisely. He's like, you're still fired, but you know if you'd have worked that hard at doing things right, you might still have your job. That was a great day of work you put in. It was really creative. Man, that was great. You're still fired. Then he has this counsel. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, when Jesus is sending out his disciples, he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of what? Wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Throughout the scripture, the serpent is a representation for whom? Satan. We should be smart as Satan, but in the character and message of Jesus Christ. Similarly, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, we read of Satan. And our counsel about him says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring what? Lion, seeking whom he may devour. Notice that in these two occasions, the devil and his followers are compared to predatory animals, wolves and lions. Such beasts hunt their prey patiently, studiously, and stealthily stalk their prey, pouncing at just the right time. Isn't that what wolves and lions are known for? Watching, stalking, and then waiting for the opportune moment, and then striking. And going back to that counsel, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Is it possible that the devil is hungrier for souls than are we? Is it possible that he puts more thought into getting people lost than we do into getting people saved? Testimonies for the Church, volume 3, page 456. Satan understands the weakness of men. He has the knowledge which he has accumulated for ages and is an experienced hand at his work. His cunning and devices are well matured. 
and are too often successful because God's people are not as wise as serpents. Evangelism, page 125. You need not feel that all the truth is to be spoken to unbelievers on any and every occasion. Have you noticed that sometimes we don't really have an approach? We don't know what we're going to say. We just go out there and blurt out. And most Seventh-day Adventists have not studiously thought about how would I approach new people? How can I gain their interest? How can I get them into the conversation that will lead to this, which will lead to this, which will lead to a conversion? You should plan, she says, carefully what to say and what to leave unsaid. This is not practicing deception. It is to work as Paul worked. He says, being crafty, I caught you with guile. She goes on to explain, you must vary your labor and not have one way which you think you must be followed at all times and in all places. Your way may seem to you a success, but if you used more tact, more of the wisdom of the serpent, you would have seen much more real results of your work. Friends, I'm not saying we're doing a bad work, but can't we do a better work for Jesus Christ? Is it possible we could have more strategy, more training, more equipping, more preparing, more guile? We must be deliberate and thoughtful to always share present truth in a way that it is most effective. For instance, on one such occasion, uh, on an occasion when writing to a missionary leaving for a post of service overseas, this comes from Testimonies to Southern Africa, page 17. Going to a place that's never heard of a Seventh-day Adventist. She writes to this missionary, a great and solemn work is before us to reach the people where they are. Do not feel at your birth, your bounden duty, the first thing to tell people, we are Seventh-day Adventists. We believe the seventh day is the Sabbath. We believe in the non-immortality of the soul. And thus erect most formidable barriers between you and those you wish to reach. But speak to them as you may have opportunity upon points of doctrine wherein you can agree and dwell on practical godliness. Give them evidence that you are a Christian, desiring peace, and that you love their souls. Let them see that you are conscientious. Thus you will gain their confidence, and then there will be time enough for the doctrines. Notice she's not saying don't preach the doctrine. She's saying do it in a way when they actually hear it. Let the hard iron heart be subdued, the soil prepared, and then lead them along cautiously, presenting in love the truth as it is in Jesus. She's saying, have a strategy. Have a plan. Don't just be a bull in the china shop. Hi, we're here to... Slow down. Think it through. I encourage you sometime, if you have your little CD-ROM or EG White app, type in the phrase, new methods. I'll give you a sample. Evangelism, pages 69 and 70. When I think of the cities in which so little work has been done, in which there are so many thousands to be warned of the soon coming of the Savior, I feel an intensity of desire to see men and women going forth to the work in the power of the Spirit filled with Christ's love for perishing souls. She goes on, new methods must be introduced. God's people must awake to the necessities of the time in which they are living. God has men whom he will call into his service, 
men who will not carry forward the work in the lifeless way in which it has been carried forward in the past. Notice he's not calling for a new message, but fresh methods. Evangelism, page 105. Men are needed who pray to God for wisdom and who under the guidance of God can put new life into the old methods of labor and can invent new plans and new methods of awakening the interest of church members and reaching the men and women of the world. Friends, we need to be creative how we even get our church members involved in the work. Testimonies for the Church, volume 6, page 476. As field after field is entered, new methods and new plans will spring from new circumstances. New thoughts will come with the new workers who give themselves to the work. As they seek the Lord for help, he will communicate with them. They will receive plans devised by the Lord himself. By the way, the idea of giving personal Bible studies from every member, that was a heaven-born plan. Sister White tells us that. In-gathering. You remember that? That was from the Lord. That had never been done before. And it worked brilliantly. And friends, we need to do that and come up with new things even more. She goes on to say, as we work in connection with the great... Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a little bit there. Again, They will receive plans devised by the Lord himself. Souls will be converted and money will come in. The workers will find waste places of the Lord's vineyard lying close beside fields that have been worked. Every field shows new places to win. All that is is done brings to light how much more still remains to be done. As we work in connection with the great teacher, the mental faculties are developed. The conscience is under divine guidance. Christ takes the entire being under his control. No one can truly be united with Christ, practicing his lessons, submitting to his yoke of restraint without realizing that which he can never express in words. New, rich thoughts come to him. Light is given to the intellect, determination to the will, sensitiveness to the conscious, purity to the imagination. The heart becomes more tender, the thoughts more spiritual, the service more Christ-like. In the life there is seen that which no words can express. True, faithful, loving devotion of heart, mind, soul, and strength to the work of the Master. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, pages 40 and 41. Very much more might be done for Christ if all who have the light of truth would practice the truth. There are whole families who might be missionaries engaging in personal labor, toiling for the master with busy hands and active brains, devising new methods for the success of his work. There are earnest, prudent, warm-hearted men and women who could do much for Christ if they would just give themselves to God, drawing near to him and seeking him with the whole heart. My brother and sisters, take an active part in the work of soul-saving. This work will give life and vigor to the mental and spiritual powers. Light from Christ will shine into the mind. The Savior will abide in your hearts, and in his light you will see light. Perhaps the most cutting of all comes to testimonies to ministers and gospel workers, page 204. The prevailing monotony of the religious round of service in our churches needs to be disturbed. The leaven of activity needs to be introduced that our church members may work along new lines and devise new methods. 
The Holy Spirit's power will move upon hearts when this dead, lifeless monotony is broken up. And many will begin to work in earnest who have never before thought of being anything but idle spectators. A working church on earth is connected with the working church above. God works, angels work, and men should work for the conversion of souls. Effort should be made to do something while the day lasts, and the grace of God will be revealed that that souls may be saved to Christ. Everywhere souls are perishing in their sins, And God is saying to every believing soul, hasten to their help with the message that I shall give you. As I was preparing this message, I thought of different creative things we could do to be more effective witnesses for Christ. I especially appreciate the one as shared in the Emanuel Institute called the surefire method of getting a Bible study interest. And if you need help, here's what you, I'm going to give you an assignment right now. Every one of you now is in a training course this morning, and for your homework, you must practice giving a Bible study with someone. So now you can go and say, honestly so, hi, um, I'm supposed, I'm taking this course on how to give Bible studies and I need someone to practice with. Would you mind helping me? You're going to get somebody to say, sure, no problem. Would you mind being my guest? I want you to evaluate if I'm even doing it well. Sure, let's say, they set it up, and they'll go through, you go through Daniel chapter 2, show them evidence, and they'll come back, and they say, that was really neat. It's like, actually, I I really actually need to practice a little bit more. Would you mind coming back? Now, you do need the practice, right? But they need the gospel, right? Sure. But get creative. And I started racking my brain. What are some creative things? And it dawned on me, why do I have to think of all the creative things? All the brains are out here. I can't make an appeal to go do something I haven't thought of yet, but maybe the Lord will teach you something to do. There are some things that we need to do that we haven't even thought up yet. But friends, we need to be engaged in the work. We need to put our minds to the task. We need to prayerfully lay our plans before God and say, Lord, make them better or change them altogether. But Lord, keep me faithful to the message and give me fresh methods so we can win more souls for Jesus Christ and hasten his coming. We need a church full of workers who work like Jesus, who work like Paul, who are brilliant, who are shrewd, who are strategic and have a goal in mind of winning every man, woman, and child for Jesus Christ. Can't believe our time is up, but let me ask you a question. Has today's presentation been clear? Praise the Lord. I hope it was convincing. I hope it was convicting. But let's go home and do something about it. Get creative. Think of new ways. Try new methods, but stay faithful to the message in all that we do. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for in your infinite wisdom, somehow, You see it best that we should be co-laborers with you. Oh Lord, please forgive our monotony if we've sunken into a rut of doing the same old, same old just because that's what we do. Lord, help us to have a deep root in Christ that our message is directly from your word and just what is needed at this time in earth's history. Keep us faithful to the message. But Lord, give us creativity. Give us that guile with which Paul worked. 
Give us a mind to think like Jesus so that every opportunity can be improved and every soul can be saved if we have anything to do with it. Lord, be with our minds, be with our mouths. Help us to say the right thing, to do the right thing, to be the people you want us to be in these last days of Earth's history. It will take supernatural effort, supernatural ability, and we can only find it in one source. So Lord Jesus, please, bless us to keep us faithful and make us useful for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.